start by saying how delightful it is to have so many of our good friends join us, um, come together as spiritual community uh, to honour, to celebrate uh, our teacher, the Buddha. Uh, Tradition has it that uh, the full moon of this month, however you calculate it, it's all a bit strange this year (laughs) because of the way they calculate these things, but anyway, the full moon of, of the month of Waisak uh, was the occasion in which the Buddha was born, and enlightened and passed away. And, and as followers of the Buddha, a fitting, certainly a fitting occasion to, to stop and make a little extra effort to recollect, to remember how uh, incredibly fortunate we are that we have a teacher and such teachings that give us an orientation in our life, a reliable orientation, an orientation that, that um, helps us realize whatever strength and ability we have for finding truth. It's not, not just a, a, a system of belief that in fact makes us weak and um, disables us, but rather something that enables us and, and serves our, our own personal interests Understanding reality, understanding uh, what it is that makes us condition into something that we suffer from. Because the Buddha lived in this world, uh, just like we do. He, he breathed the air that we're breathing and ate food and slept and uh, all the things that we do. And yet uh, he didn't have any problems, and yet we do. And so uh, what is it that we do that creates problems out of life? Fortunately, he didn't just say, believe in me. He, uh, he went a little bit further. Well, he went a lot further, actually, and spent his whole life uh, giving very clear teachings. So, so it's certainly very fitting to come together and, and really become as aware as we can of what good fortune we have to have been born at a time when these teachings are around and to have access and opportunity uh, to practice these teachings. So talking about uh, spending time together and, and gathering a spiritual community, we've had the, uh, the benefit of various senior Sangha members visiting here uh, over recent weeks. And we've just uh, said goodbye to, to three of the most senior of Ajahn Shah's disciples, uh, Ajahn Chu, Ajahn Kam, and Ajahn Damrong. And these, are, these were senior monks when I was new in Thailand. Some of them, I don't know if I've even seen them in the last 30-something years. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if I've even seen them. I, I may have glanced them when I passed through Thailand once, but uh, I don't recollect. But it was an honor to have them come and stay with us. Also, uh, Ajahn Jai Saro, some of you will be familiar with him. Uh, one of Ajahn Chah's our closest Western disciples, lived with him for many years, uh, cared for him for many years, and and wrote his uh, biography, uh, unfortunately not translated into English yet, but uh, he's working on it. And he na- he was the abbot of Watnana Chant for a good number of years and, and now lives in his own hermitage. So he hadn't visited us here for 20 years, so it was nice to have, have him visit. And he gave an inspiring Dhamma talk one evening, uh, reminding us all on the, the complete practice that the Buddha taught. Now it's it's easy so long as we're deluded to just pick up bits of the teachings. And you know there's that simile in the scriptures of of the blind men and or blind men and women, I don't know, coming to describe a uh, an elephant, right? And one grabs the trunk and 
or the foot and says it's like a tree, another one grabs the tr- tusk, another one grabs the, the tail, whatever, and says it's like a broom. And that. So, you know, if you're blind, your appreciation of what you're dealing with is limited. And likewise for us, um, we're blinded by our limited perceptions. And so we have uh, sometimes risk having a limited appreciation of the teachings that the Buddha gave us. And so um, there's a, a discourse where the Buddha speaks very explicitly about what it is that we need to do if we want to generate wholesome potential in our lives. Now, of course, we'd all like to be enlightened, but you know, you can't do that. I mean, if, we, if they could just do enlightenment, we'd have done it, right? We've all heard about it a long time ago, and we'd all like it. But you can't just do enlightenment, even if you get extreme, like taking serious medication, and you think, well, you know, that's going to do it. Well, it might sort of do it for a, a few hours, but then it gets undone again, and you, then you get disappointed, and probably more confused than you were before. Uh, and so... We can't do enlightenment, we can't get ourselves enlightened, but what the Buddha was very explicit about was there is wholesome potential which you can generate which conduces with liberation. You know, there are things we can do that makes us inclined towards freedom from suffering. There is effort we can make which leaves us susceptible to understanding, susceptible to insight arising. And so it's important, I feel, and, and worth recollecting, particularly on this occasion of, of Wei Sang, to, you know, to, to consider these things that the Buddha, Buddha talked about. He said, I know of three things that conduce with the cultivation or generation of wholesome potential. What are these three? Uh, he said, there is dana, there is sila, there is bhavana. And he didn't just say, there is dana and that's it. He didn't just say, well, there's sila, be good. He didn't just say there's meditation or pawana. He said there is dana, there is sila, and there's pawana. And so one way of thinking about this, and I find helpful, is to consider these three aspects of uh, the the teachings as like the three legs of a stool. If you've got a a stool and it's only got two legs... (laughs) You know what's going to happen. Ouch. Yeah. You've only got one leg. Well, that's really hard work. <laughs> but if you've got three legs and they're secure you know, and they're balanced and they're in the right place, you've got something to rest on. And so I'd like to consider this evening these, these three legs, if you like, or these three aspects of the, that constitute the completeness of the Buddha's teaching. Because when, we, when we're confused and we lose perspective and we don't know what we're supposed to be doing, well, you can, you know, you can look at the Buddha's teachings and you say, oh, it's just too much. You know, this is all just there's so much there. I mean, look at that Tripitaka case back there, just full of books. And, and you go on to Amazon.com and look up Buddhism, and my goodness, you don't want to go there. There's just so much written about Buddhism and and you go on YouTube, and there's so much said about Buddhism, too much, quite frankly. So when you're faced with the proliferation, what do you do? There was an occasion when our teacher Ajahn Chah was visiting one of his teachers, Ajahn Man, and he asked Ajahn Man, he said, look, you know, he said, I've been reading... You know, the teachings I've been reading, the commentaries, I think he had been the read, studying the Visuddhimagga um, by Buddha Gosa. And he said, oh, I've been studying the Sina Nitesa and the Samadhi Nitesa and the Panya Nitesa. These are the, 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 the sections, the commentaries on Sila and the commentaries on Samadhi and the commentaries on Panya. And he says, oh, Manlua Visai Kong Manut, which means, he says, oh, it just seems like this is beyond human capability. It's just too much. And Ajahn Man said, yes, it can appear too much. Can you make it simple? Yeah. And Ajahn Man was one very wise being. And <clears throat> he was, this was his advice to Ajahn Chah. And certainly it was Ajahn Chah's advice to us. When There's an occasion where, where somebody asked Ajahn Chah, how do you define Buddhism? He said, simplify your life and watch your mind. 
Again, we can make Buddhism into this great, big, amazingly complicated thing, sometimes so complicated that we forgive ourselves for not really giving ourselves to it. You know, say, well, it's just too much for me. Well, that wasn't. That's not Dhamma. That's not what the Buddha taught. That's not what Ajahn Man taught. That's not what Ajahn Chah taught. What what is wise, what's appropriate, is to bring all this back to something that's manageable. And so these three aspects, I would suggest, are manageable if we take them seriously, if we really look into them. So what is meant by dana? Now, from the perspective of the form of practice, bearing in mind that all aspects should be considered from the perspective of form and the perspective of spirit. If we just look at the form, you can really go off. I mean, if if the Buddhists were seriously concerned with the form of Buddhism, then when the Taliban blew up those Bamiyang Buddhas, you know, Buddhists would have gone and made a problem with their Muslims living next door. Buddhists hopefully know that the Bamiyang Buddhas, beautiful as they were, were really just, you know, some images carved into a bunch of rock in Afghanistan a long time ago. I think the evidence is that the archaeologists and the and the historians were more upset about it than the Buddhists were, uh, and a little bit puzzled. Why weren't Buddhists getting up in arms about it? And say, so, well, actually, the spirit of the Buddhist teachings is that, is that you don't get up in arms over, you know, some deluded fundamentalist destroying a carving. Yeah. So there's the form. Yes, it's wonderful that Buddha images. I love our Buddha image here. I think it's great. I think we're. I think we're just one of the luckiest monasteries in Britain, this Buddha image here. I, I don't go on about it too much because I don't want people to you know, get envious, but I think this Buddha image is stunning and we're very, very fortunate to have it. However, as I was pointing out to somebody who was in the monastery today, it's not insured, this Buddha image. Uh, there's other things here that are insured. The trustees feel obliged to insure the building and, and so on. They're responsible people, our trustees. But they haven't insured the Buddha image. Not that we don't care about it. Um, I don't know why they didn't insure it. But actually, <laughs> I'm pleased it's not insured. Because that's not the point of Buddhism. That's not the spirit. Yeah, that's the form. And so like with Dharma, the form, looking at contemplating the form of Dharma, well, yes, we know what it means to make offerings, to be generous. And uh, yes, we know what the, we, presumably we know what the Buddha said about dana. And he said, if you know, if people knew what I knew about the power of dana, the power of generosity, if people know what I know about generosity, they wouldn't even eat a single mouthful of food without considering sharing it with another, if there's somebody else there to share it with and they wouldn't allow stinginess to take root in consciousness. This wouldn't allow it. But, he said, because people don't know what I know, unfortunately, uh, they do eat without considering sharing. And they do, sadly, allow stinginess to take root in consciousness. So certainly we've read, you know, we know what the Buddha said about it. There's the theory, and we, we see... The traditions of, of making offerings, whether it's uh, offering candles and incense and flowers to to the shrine, uh, and uh, the generosity of people that make places like this possible, coming and making offerings, and or the uh, contributions to to charities and and so on. Now, from one perspective, we, we know that's a good thing to do, but what is the spirit of dana? What is the point of dana? What 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 are we really addressing? Well, one of the things the Buddha pointed out was that it's um, it's a way of generating wholesome potential. You know, usually, when we give, the tendency is to think that we're losing something. That's the that's that's the perspective from a from a, a contracted, uh, self-referencing ego. That when I give something, I've lost something. But the reality is, actually, you gain something. You gain, well, it can be described in many ways, but I think the most important aspect is what we gain is a more relaxed and easy relationship to self. 
We do lose something, but what we lose is a burden, the pain of self. Me and mine, and always grabbing for me, always taking for me, always accumulating for me. But what a burden this me is. Not just my possessions and, and my body, but also my opinions and my rights and my views and my suffering and my practice and Oh, the me and mine, what an enormous burden. And how wonderful to be free from that. Well, the cultivation of dharma is one of the, the best ways of, of addressing that directly. You, know, you can do a lot of meditation and be seriously good about keeping your precepts, but if we're overly self-referencing, if we're overly concerned about me all the time, we don't have the spirit of generosity alive within us, then when obstructions arise, they're my obstructions. When problems arise, they're my problems. Even when insights arise, they're my insights. And then the next thing you know, you go and start preaching about your insights. And what an unfortunate situation that is. (laughs) So there's me and mine as seriously unfortunate condition to to be burdened with. If there's a way of addressing it, we want to get interested in that. Well, dana, there's definitely ways of doing that. And you can see... You know, with all of these, the contemplating, contemplating the spirit of practice with all of these aspects, dana, sila, bhavana, contemplating the spirit of it, we need to be reflecting inwards, like I was saying during the meditation, you know, to really be reading as how does this affect me? When we practice dana, how does it affect us? You might feel when, for instance, when you're giving, somebody I've known for many, many years came to visit the monastery and and kindly gave some, some gifts, generously gave some gifts to the monastery, to the monks and novices. And afterwards he was explaining, he said, after all these years I still, feel, I still feel self-conscious about it. I still feel embarrassed about it. But he says, but it doesn't matter, because I still want to do it. There's a habit there that from way back in his life that when he's the focus of attention he feels self-conscious. But he's willing and able and keen to override that because he also feels and recognizes the benefit of it. When he looks at his own heart and mind, and his meditation is very good, this guy, and he, he knows that one of the, the main, the obstruction to development is the self-referencing habit we have. We're always taking the structure of me too seriously, thinking that it's something ultimate. Of course, having a me, having a self is important. We all know that. But it's not ultimately important. It's not what it looks like. It's not solid. It's not that substantial. So how do we change our relationship with it? Well, dana, generosity, things that we can do to let go. But again, not just hearing this as a form of something we should do, but considering for ourselves. When you do something, even if there's a little bit of self-consciousness or you think, oh, they don't need what I'm giving them or maybe they don't like what I'm giving them, that's not the point. The point is to reflect on how do you feel afterwards. I can still remember a situation many years ago where I was uh, living down in Devon and, and uh, some, some friends from the monastery in Chittis came to visit and stay with us and they were about to go back to the monastery and, and we'd been talking about one of the monks there who was a good friend of mine who was actually very ill at the time and I wanted to send a gift back with these friends uh, for him and I didn't have very much and, and, uh, but I had just been given a jar of honey really nice, I don't know, organic Devon honey. And, and I was very pleased with this because you know, I was keen on honey in those days. But I thought, oh, what a nice gift to give him. That was the first thought. And then the second thought was, oh, no, I don't get given honey very often. I'm not going to give him my honey. I'll give him something else. And then the thought came out, well, actually, no, that's not very appropriate. And then I get caught in this tussle. Should I give him the honey? Yes, I should give him I don't want to give him the honey. You know, I don't get given honey very often. If I do, it's that, that cheap, sugary honey. This is the real McCoy. I don't want to give him the honey. And I think I virtually threw this jar of honey at the person. So take this back to give to so-and-so. So, and uh, that was the end of my jar of honey. Yeah. Well, you know, at the most, I could have kept the jar of honey if I wasn't greedy. It might have lasted seven days and... You know, then we've got to give up our honey. We're only allowed to keep them for seven days. And I could have had seven days of, of, of minimal pleasure out of it. But I can think back. Here I am now, I don't know, 30-something years later, and I can still remember that the wholesome intention of giving won out over the selfish intention of holding back for me. And that's beautiful. So <clears throat> I quote that um, not to talk about my virtue, because <laughs> it's not that great, but, but to say that in reflecting on 
dana, to just to consider for, for ourselves, not just to believe what the book says, yes, to heed the words the Buddha said, yes, to observe the rituals and the tradition, but also to consider for ourselves. Consider it inwardly, and also to consider what's going on outwardly when you see other people, people who are generous, so generally very happy people. People who have lived a very generous, giving life uh, are generally very happy people. Whereas people who are perhaps even very wealthy, but stingy, yeah, not probably terribly happy. That's a sad thing to observe. Or you can observe with children. Children, although yes, there's a certain stage of development where quite appropriately they're developing a sense of self-differentiation and and so there is sometimes me and mine, of course, that's understandable. But also, children know how to give spontaneously. There's a spontaneous joy in giving. Yeah. Somebody was telling me a story about uh, their son um, who was driving, his mother, actually his son and his wife and their, their young boy. And so that's, that's her son and grandson in the car and, and they're going on a trip and this was in America and the mother and father were sitting in the front seat and the young boy in the back seat. And they stopped and picked up a hitchhiker. And, and the hitchhiker got in the car and they are driving along. And it wasn't long before the hitchhiker started preaching to them and trying to save them. And pointing out that, you know, if you don't believe what I believe, then you're not going to heaven. Because, you know, the Lord has said there's only, I don't know, so many thousand people are going to go to heaven when the world comes to an end, and it's going to come to an end, you know. And so, yeah, so you know, uh, this guy was really going on. He says, you know, there's only so many people going, and, and uh, you know, you've got to be one of them. And, you know, the little boy in the back of the car, he turned around and he said, wow, he said, you know, if I had that ticket, I think I'd give it to somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> that wouldn't have occurred to me. <laughs> I just would have thought, what a dumb religion or something, you know. But his impulse, <laughs> his impulse was one of generosity, you know, and that's beautiful. And that's, that's you know, that's, the, that's where, for children, that contracted sense of me is not there yet, not completely. Not like for us, that the painful me and mine which builds up as the years go by, the habits of grasping. Uh, for a child, that's totally natural and spontaneous. So, to contemplate what the principle of dana is, the form, but also the spirit, how we can practice it and see how it affects us, see how it affects our life. You know, like you, if you're meditating a lot and you're totally self-obsessed and, and always concerned about your practice and your meditation, maybe what you need to do is to look outside and see the people around you and see the birds. You know, it's winter. The birds need some water. The bird needs some food. Or, or your mother needs a phone call. And... You know, we're always very, very spiritual, you know, thinking about ourselves. But sometimes what we need to be paying attention to is our relationships. And, and dana, practicing dana is one of the best ways of cultivating wholesome relationships. So not always looking inwards. Looking inwards is important. Yes, we'll get onto that under, under pawana. That's the third leg. But the, you know, the first one is also, you know, to get our relationships in balance and, some time ago, I forget now, but some time ago when I was in my, my kuti and, and I, I discovered there was a bad smell around and I, I was looking for, where is this bad smell? Is it, I don't know, a dead animal in here somewhere or, you know, it's my clothes or the carpet hasn't been hoovered or what's this bad smell? And I kind of really got worried and kind of concerned about, you know, this bad smell and, and Whatever my other senses, as I get older, my hearing is going down, my taste is going down, my, my eyesight is deteriorating, my mental faculties are deteriorating, but my sense of smell seems to be very acute, and so, which is sometimes quite unfortunate. Anyway, I was a bit concerned about the smell of my cootie, the smell of my cootie, and I, I, I don't know, I probably had bad thoughts about my attendant monk not keeping the place clean or something. Well, then I suddenly realized that it wasn't anything to do with my cootie. It was the farmer next door was putting muck on the fields. Now, here I was just thinking, it's me, my cootie. Well, that, that's what happens if we are self-referencing too much. And so the, the place of dana should not be underestimated. As the Buddha said, you know, if people know what I know, 
about the power of dharma, they wouldn't even have a single mouthful of food without considering sharing it. So, dana sila. So, we are all familiar with the form of sila. And um, regularly take the five precepts. Or, or if you're uh, so inclined, occasionally take the eight precepts. Mount it up, little renunciation practice. Or, or like the Anagarikas here, taking the eight precepts. Or if you end up wanting to live a monastic life... You know, for a while you try it out by keeping the ten precepts like Samanera Gambira here and if you decide well yeah I'm into this I could do with a bit more pressure still you take on 227 precepts and like the monks do and uh, and so that uh, then you you know then the pressure really builds up and, and it helps you uh, it's supposed to help you work hard at, um, at paying attention inwardly that's the point the form is the precepts. But the point is to help you look inwardly, to see your intention. What is the intention? Where are we coming from? If all we do is busy keeping the form, being very, very good men and women, behaving ourselves impeccably, it doesn't necessarily lead to well-being. One can be so squeaky clean on the level of keeping precepts, but you just get busy judging other people for not being as virtuous as you are. So just keeping all the rules, the letter of the rule, that's, that's not all there is to it. There's also the spirit. And so as with dana, stopping and considering, you know, how does it affect me when I keep precepts? Or if, unfortunately, if it does happen, that you don't keep your precepts, then what is the effect there? And so if we're considering like this, then uh, maybe you start to get an appreciation of, of what the Buddha was pointing to when he was talking to his attendant monk, the Venerable Ananda, when the Venerable Ananda asked him, Lord, he said, what is the point of, of sila? And the Buddha answered back, so the point of sila is for generating freedom from remorse. Well, again, that's not something that would have occurred to me. You know, I would have thought something like social organization or, or, or something. You know. But the freedom from remorse. So the Buddha knew that if there isn't freedom from remorse, then whatever other good stuff that we're doing, whatever power now we might be doing, or for that matter, whatever dana we might be doing, doesn't really bring the full benefit. Now, the image Ajahn Chah used to say was he, he, we would dye our robes regularly. In the monastery you're given white cloth usually and, and we would dye the robes. And, but if, uh, if the cloth is dirty, if it's greasy, you know, before you put the dye on, uh, it doesn't take. You know, you put a lot of work into creating this dye. In those days we would, I think still now the monasteries, they, they, they chop up jackfruit tree. I don't know if some of you know what jackfruit is like. Uh, a particularly yummy fruit that unfortunately we don't have in this country. But uh, the, uh, the, the, the trunk of it, when you get into the heartwood, has got a lot of sap in it, which it provides a very good dye, just this colour. And it takes a lot of work, a lot of chopping the wood up into fine chips and then boiling it up and then concentrating it down until you've got a liquor, a, a, a dye, which is really concentrated, and then you dye your robes in it. But... If you don't wash your robes first, then all that work goes to waste. And so it is with a lot of the spiritual effort that we make. If the heart is not free from remorse, well, unfortunately a lot of the good effort doesn't bring the benefit that it could. And so, so living a life of harmlessness, which is what the, the precepts are all about, is not taking advantage of people, not acting aggressively, not acting abusively, not abusing power. That's the, the principle of, of the precepts. You know, the form of five precepts we know, but as we apply them in our daily life, with our restraint with regards to body and speech, then in the process we start to become aware of the inner motivation. So, what did I really mean when I said that? Well, actually I don't know, I can't tell, because you know, my mind is so confused. And so, well, who's responsible for the confusion? I am. 
I better look more closely. And if we don't know our own hearts and minds, then, as I was saying during the meditation, we're vulnerable. And also, the, um, as I was saying, the, uh, the good effort that we make, whether it's the, the generosity or the, the, the meditation we might be doing, a lot of the benefit is lost. The image that really sticks in my mind is, is uh, again, in our monastery, early days in, in Thailand, and these days I think they've got electricity and they've probably got running water, but in those days Ajahn Chah wouldn't allow to have electricity in the monastery. And every day at 3 o'clock in the afternoon we used to do water hauling. Uh, Nam, pulling water from the well. And uh, hard work, very hard work, very hot and sweaty at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And, and you're not only pulling the water up from the, from the well, then you've got to carry it on bamboo poles and pour it to the where you go and have a bath, pour it to a place where you wash your feet. And uh, a lot of jolly hard work, very sweaty work. Well, can you imagine if you know, we have these metal tins, if you went and punched a whole lot of holes in the tin? Yeah, well, you know, that's not very intelligent, is it? Because you know, <laughs> you're doing all this hard work and then you're, you're losing a lot of the benefit. Well, so it is with sila, that if we're not living a life of integrity, if we don't have self-respect, then whatever other wholesome potential we're generating, there's a risk we're going to lose it. Yeah. It's like in, you know, in business, maybe you've got a very good business idea and you've got everything set up, but you've got some crooks working for you and they're just siphoning off all the profit. You want to find out who's the crook around here and, and um, tell them to clean up their act or go somewhere else. Yeah. Well, those tendencies within our mind that lead us towards abusing our power or taking advantage of a situation, being dishonest, those tendencies are like the crooks, the criminals in our minds. And the five precepts, the form of the five precepts, are there not to make us goody-goody-two-shoes, but to help us get to see that for ourselves and to the point that I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And then when we've got that established, I don't want to be harmful, I don't want to be dishonest, then the spirit of Dhamma, in the beginning it's sila Dhamma, you know, we're, we're restraining ourselves. But as we put more effort into this, then eventually it becomes Dhamma Dhamma. Sila Dhamma then it's Dhamma Dhamma. It's the Dhamma itself, the actuality of Sila. We start to find for ourselves. So considering this, yes, we've got the form of the precepts, but not settling for just that initial understanding, but also considering for ourselves, what's the point of these? And until we, you know, we're using our mind to consider it for ourselves. Not just depending out there. Somebody came to see me recently and he was uh, talking at quite some length about a problem he was having. I couldn't quite understand what he was talking about. But then he said, oh, well, okay, I'll be quite explicit then. And said, well, basically, he's a married man and he's having these affairs outside his marriage. And he wanted me to tell him if that was okay or not. And, um, and so um, he was asking me to tell him if it was okay. You know, so what I said to him is, well, how do you feel about what you're doing? You know, I don't want to give him just something else, some external authority that he can then say, oh, well, I just so-and-so said I could or I couldn't or whatever. And I didn't want to do that. And so with this fellow, I said, well, do you feel contented? I mean, he kind of tried to justify it for a while. And I said, well, you know, yeah. I said, well, you know, if you felt contented, you wouldn't be coming to see me. But our habits to lie to ourselves as such, that we can be doing stuff that on one level we know is not right and still trying to kid ourselves. Yeah? So that's why it's very important that with the precepts we're not just trying to keep the form of the rules, but we're also using it to go in and look and ask ourselves, you know, what is my motivation? We've been learning to be really honest. You know, really impeccability is another word. You want know, to translate sila. What is sila? Well, it's integrity. It's also impeccability. Um, and maybe you can find your own word. So that's also part of uh, contemplating the spirit of, of, of these, these Dhamma principles, is finding our own word for it. So dana, sila, we've got two of the three legs of the stool, and so the last one is pawana. Now, 
it's often uh, the case that that uh, people will, as with Dana and Sila, focus too much on the form of what they think is meant by pavana. You know, sometimes the word pavana is translated as meditation. So people go off and do a meditation technique and you know, they learn some technique that they read in a book or some meditation expert told them and so they do their meditation technique. And, and after a while they're still miserable and unhappy. And what's going on here? Well, we have to not just attend to the form. Pawana means more than meditation. Sometimes it's translated as, as, as mental discipline or mental training, as if it's something to do with our heads. You know, Pawana is a lot more than just thinking. It is thinking. We do need to use thinking, but we're using thinking in a wise way. And so I would suggest that the spirit of Pawana is the cultivation of wisdom. Yeah. But again, I would encourage us all to find our own word for it. Not just be impressed by some spiritual expert who tells us that pawana means meditation and then go and do some meditation, have some nice experiences and then put a lot of energy into trying to repeat those nice experiences again. You know, that's basically, that's, that's abdication. That's not taking responsibility for our own inner cultivation of wisdom. We listen to the wisdom teachings. We're hugely grateful that we have the wisdom teachings. But we need to do more than just listen to them and believe in them, surely we need to uh, engage these teachings and for ourselves and see what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. And, you know, you're faced with a quandary and so instead of just saying, well, what, did the, what would an expert do in this situation? Which, you know, yes, there is a time for considering what would my teachers do in this situation. But also we can just ask for yourself, what's the wise thing to do? What's the wise thing to do? Because that word wisdom symbolizes something for us. It's not a word that's used in the pejorative, as far as I can tell. You hear morality is used in the pejorative often enough, and and all sorts of other uh, otherwise useful words in the English language are are used in the pejorative. But I I don't think I've ever heard the word wisdom used in the pejorative. Wisdom, we all recognize, is, is a virtuous quality. So we can ask ourselves, what's the wise thing to do? this situation and so in so doing we're beginning this is Pawana we're beginning to engage our inner faculties to consider for ourselves there's all sorts of virtues that the Buddha praised as we just said dana and sila and gratitude and respect and we can believe in all these things but does that mean that we're being wise being wise is, is quite different from believing in wisdom. You know, we believe in what the Buddha said. Yeah, we do. I do. I really believe what the Buddha said. Yeah. So somebody was talking to me recently about death, and, and um, they were saying how, how disappointing they felt that, they, that, that, that the belief system they had uh, didn't, didn't really give them anything when it came to facing the possibility of somebody they know dying. And their concept of death was, it's like, well, a being is like a snowflake and it, it floats down and then it meets the water and then it dissolves into the great ocean. And I said, well, I don't, I've got no time for that new age gobbledygook who asked me. I've got no time for it at all. You know, I believe what the Buddha said. Now, I didn't used to talk like that. I used to be so afraid that, that, that you know, Westerners would, would be put off if you talked about what the Buddha said about the subject. But now, you know, I apologize to the Buddha and I actually repeat what the Buddha said about it which is that with his faculties, his superior faculties, he could see the law of karma and rebirth operating. The fact that we can't see the law of karma and rebirth operating all the time, well, that doesn't mean to say it's not true. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff we don't see and hear, and, and that's that. dogs can hear more than we can. <laughs> so, you know, surely wise beings can see more than we can. You know, you have a cup of coffee and you can, your brain operates better and you suddenly understand more. It's just a few chemicals and you start to see more. Yeah. We're in a state of serious limitation most of the time. Well, I'd probably say all of the time, quite frankly, yeah, most of us. Yeah. 
Well, the Buddha wasn't in that state of limited being. And through his superior wisdom, superior consciousness, was able to see truths that we don't even see. And so it's not that we have to believe in this. The example I always give is, you know, where you've got a a sat-nav, a GPS, it's called in your car. You know, you don't have to always believe in it. You test it. You don't know whether it's been updated recently. But as you go along, you say, oh, there's a new road there. And so on my sat-nav, oh, yeah, there's a... There's a motorway there, oh yeah, and there's a river there, oh it's all on the set. Okay, well I'll give up worrying about the reliability of this GPS and I'll just trust in it. And then just get on with it. You know? Well, it's the same with the Buddha's teachings on wisdom. You know, say, oh yeah, the Buddha said about this, actually, yeah, that's, that's, that seems to work. What he said about that really seems to work. In fact, I can't see anything there you know, that the Buddha said that doesn't work. Well, but what about the teachings on karma and reaper? So, well, I'll trust. So, you know, we choose, we can if we want to, I do, I choose to trust. And that trusting relationship to the wisdom teachings then informs our, our behavior and puts us in, I would suggest, puts us in a, in a privileged position and, and to investigate life. Of course, the practice in the cultivation of wisdom is to investigate life, tamawichaya, to ask the right questions at the right time of ourselves. Yes, we ask others, but we also ask ourselves the right questions at the right time. What's going on here? We don't. If we, if there's no wisdom, then we can't see clearly. We can't see whether we should take the teachings literally. For instance, you know, if you, if you, if you don't have wisdom or access to wisdom teachings, then you can take the teachings literally. Like in, this, in I think it's the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, there's an expression in Pali, the Buddha talks about the ekayana margo, the one way. The Buddha said this, there is one way to enlightenment. The Buddha actually said this. Do you ever hear Buddhists going around saying, there is one way, and you know, if you don't believe in this one way, I'm going to do such and such? Well, no, because when the Buddha was pointing to this one way, hopefully Buddhists hear what the Buddha was saying and do what the Buddha encouraged, rather than just believing in what the Buddha said. He, is, he said there is one way, the way of mindfulness, and the four foundations of mindfulness. There is this one way that if you want to get liberated, <clears throat> you need to cultivate this. And so without wisdom or access to wisdom teachings, we can sometimes take even spiritual teachings too literally. Without wisdom or access to wisdom teachings, we also don't know time and place. Yeah, we, we can behave you know, in rather foolish ways. We can say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing. But if there's some at least interest in a wise response to life, then we're willing to question. Yeah. A naive, unwise relationship to life is a fundamentalist relationship. We just find a belief system, we grasp. As you grasp it, you, know, you grasp, you contract consciousness. It's like when the blood capillaries contract you get a lot of energy. You know? That's what happens when there's adrenaline, right? The blood vessels contract, constrict, and you get a lot of energy, which has got a certain function in the, in the body. Yeah. Well, when consciousness contracts and constricts, yes, you get a lot of energy, like fundamentalists. You ever met fundamentalists? They've got a lot of energy. Bright eyes. Look a lot better than I do. Nicer complexion. More energy than me. Yeah. But they, they don't necessarily know how to ask difficult questions. They don't necessarily know how to accommodate doubt or uncertainty. If you don't believe what they believe, then you tend to belong to the group that they call other and then behave in a way that you do towards the other, you know, which is not always compassionate and sensitive. And so if there's wisdom or access to wisdom teachings, then we can accommodate doubt, maybe, at least we can allow for uncertainty. We can question even our own beliefs, our own assumptions, you know, our own views that we have. And in talking about time and place, there was uh, Ajahn Kusala, I think, told me about this uh, encounter he had when um, Ajahn Kusala, who I don't know if you've met, he, he, he's just moved from Canada. He's now taking up uh, Abbott in the monastery in Wellington. And... Uh, he had, I think it was an attendant, a young Burmese boy, student, I think was his attendant, and he introduced him to his mother. And as he introduced this young student 
whose English was not perfect. Anyway, he introduced him to his mother and the, the young student said, oh, I can see that when you were young you must have been very good looking. And, <laughs> well, I don't know, maybe in Burmese that's, you can say something like that, but to an elderly Kiwi woman you don't say things like that. That's not, you know, that did not help the relationship. <laughs> that, uh, if, we, if we're willing to, to question our assumptions. You know, we can we can be cautious about the things that we say. It leads to empathy. If we're just believing in ourselves and believing in things literally, well, that doesn't help empathy. Or in my own case, I was I was travelling on a train and um, sitting down the end of the carriage, and and Jenny was just going along, and I'd been up and went to the bathroom, I think, and came back and and sat in my seat and. And then not long after that, I, I saw this elderly woman kind of wobbling down the corridor towards me. And she was in a terrible state. I mean, like a real, you know, very unkempt and, and, and wobbling all over the carriage. Quite elderly and just, oh, embarrassing behavior. Some such unwholesome thought I was having. And then she, she comes to me and she comes right up to me and she gives me my ticket. She says, oh, you dropped your ticket, love. And uh, I, I quickly reassessed my assumptions about this this lady and, and realized that I'd been creating a story that did not accord with reality. Yeah. That's when there's no wisdom or access to wisdom teachings, that's what we do. We just create stories and believe in them. We're not relating to the reality. We're relating to the view, the false view, the Michaditi that we've created. The first fact of the Eightfold Path is Samaditi, right view. And our relationship to our views. Yes, the view itself is important. Like the teachings on the Four Noble Truths, the teachings on karma, the teachings on rebirth. These views that the Buddha taught, right views, it's important. That's the form. But the spirit of relating to those views is also important. We don't just relate to wisdom as if it's something out there. This is one of the great inspirations for my going to live with Ajahn Chah. I remember as a young monk, I think maybe even as a novice, I was living in a monastery in Bangkok in Wapawan and I was trying to figure out who's the wisest teacher to go and live with and, and where should I be spent doing my monastic training and and uh, this young monk, I think it was Warapanyo, an American monk, came to stay or visit the monastery there and, and I was trying to figure out what was right view. You know, this is the first fact on the Eightfold Path and, and I'd read various different things about right view and so I, I asked Warapanyo, I said, how does Ajahn Chah describe right view. And I still remember Warapanya's answer. He said, Ajahn Chah says right view is not attaching to any views and opinions. Oh, that's different. What a different perspective, isn't it? Does that do something to you? It does to me. It's just, oh, that's a whole different perspective. It's not like the view out there, which you're supposed to get and hold on to and then be secure. It's talking about the way you relate to the view Yes, the view that the Buddha articulated is important. We need to get educated with the approximation of the view, the theory, the pariyatic. We need to get that. We need to program that in. But that doesn't matter. If you just program it in, it doesn't mean to say you know how to use it. Yeah. Once we've got it programmed in, then we need to relate to it. Then we need to use it in the right way. So attaching to even the Buddha's views on karma and rebirth and the Four Noble Truths, that's not it either. We can spoil the, the teachings of the Buddha if we attach to them, if we grasp at them. So considering for ourselves, what does it mean, wisdom? What is wisdom, anyway? When Ajahn Jayasara was here uh, recently, we, were, we went for a walk down by the lake and we were sitting on one of the nice benches down there and discussing various little sayings that we had remembered from, <clears throat> from Ajahn Chah, uh, our time with Ajahn Chah. You know, he, he'd say these things, just kind of little things that he would come out with, which just seemed to kind of really, you know, really punch you, just kind of really whoo, you know, hit you. And, and, and we were discussing how here we are, whatever, 30-something years later, and these little sayings are still there. And, and so he shared one of his favorite in Thai, the expression that Ajahn Chah used was tuk prok kit pit. Very simple, four words. Tuk prok kit pit. 
which means took your suffering prop because keep you think pit wrongly. Yeah. Took prop keep pit. It's not much, but wow, it's that ever profound. When you're really suffering and you think it's you know, somebody else's fault and there's plenty of occasions, you know, the economy, the environment, the politicians, the the weather, whatever, astrological configuration, genetic inheritance, all these things that we can blame, all the stuff, all the conditions that we can project onto. But Ajahn Chah's wise perspective was to keep it. It's suffering because you think wrongly. Not suffering because you think. He didn't say that. Keep it. It's because we think wrongly. And what did he mean by to think wrongly? So would he have naughty thoughts? You know, about, oh, I don't like this person. No, that's not. To keep it. What does it mean to keep it? What does it mean to think wrongly? It means, again, pointing to the relationship to thinking. The Buddha encouraged thinking. Wise contemplation, he said, uh, is for seeing your mind. You know, when, when his son... Uh, Rahula uh, was talking to the Buddha and the Buddha said, you know, a mirror is for seeing your face in. Wise reflection is for seeing the mind in. Not just sitting there counting your breath. That's a very good thing to do sometimes. Or sitting there repeating a mantra. That's a very good thing to do sometimes. But there's more to it than that. There's more to it than meditation technique. The spirit, surely, of Pawana is to engage our inner interest, uh, our inner capacity for contemplating skillfully, seeing does it work or does it not work. Again, the Buddha said, and when you're suffering, you think, when you're following something like, for instance, anger, what do I gain by following anger? What do I lose by following anger? Mm-hmm. Now, the admonition impression with anger can be that you want to follow it. Because it's got all this energy, you want to just be free from it, so you want to just let somebody have it. And some in some schools of psychotherapy, they'll tell you you mustn't bottle it up. And even sort of spiritual psychotherapists can sometimes tell you you've got to act it out. There's nothing wrong with being angry, and the Buddhists have got it wrong. You know, the Buddhists, you've got to be very careful. As Buddhists, they'll teach you you shouldn't get angry. Well, what the Buddha talked about was when there is. Happiness to know there is happiness. Yeah, by extrapolation, when there is anger, to know there is anger. Now, what does it mean to know there is anger? What, what is a wise perspective on anger? A wise perspective of anger surely means, if you know a wise perspective, it means you've got actually, first you've got to stop resisting it and pretending it's not there, pushing it out of awareness, yeah, to accept it and to investigate what is the experience in the body, in the heart, in the mind. What is it? The heart pace, the heart rate increases, and you start getting sweaty palms, and, you, and then the energy goes into your head, and you start creating stories you know, around what, you know this person. Then you say, "I've got to, I've got to write, and it's good for me. It's going to let this energy off. I'll give myself a high blood pressure." Blah blah blah. And, the, and this school of psychotherapy said you shouldn't, you know, whatever. All the stories we create. Well, that's not pristine awareness. That's not interested receptivity of the experience of anger and contemplating our relationship to anger. There is anger from time to time. To get interested in that, to to feel it in the body, to receive it, to allow it. So not to push it down, so it comes back later and and kicks you, and not to follow it, so that you actually end up spreading it around and hurting other people and creating more karma, so that it's easier to follow next time. But the wisdom of the middle way of containing it, allowing it, receiving it, and getting interested in it. Getting interested in our relationship with it. If we're not identified as the anger, surely, there's not a problem. So like with desire, maybe some of you have experienced that if you observe desire, you can feel desire. Say, yes, I really want to move. There's some pain in my knee and I really want to move right now really do want to move. Yeah, there's wanting, there's pain, there's wanting, but maybe you've experienced the perspective that is possible whereby you're not denying the fact that you want, but you're not following the wanting, you're allowing it. And then, you know, blow me down, the desire just comes and goes. And actually, there's a relaxation in the body and the, 
the pain goes away. Sometimes. Don't take that as a formula that you've got to follow all the time. That's not the spirit of the teachings. But to recognize that there is, or to trust, as far as I'm concerned, that the spirit of wisdom is to trust that there is a perspective of a free, unobstructed relationship with all aspects of life. To trust in that. It started off by saying that Buddha lived in this world, breathed the air that we breathe, you know, the very same air that we're breathing, uh, ate and slept. Yeah. And yet he didn't suffer, and we do. So to trust in that perspective, that that is possible. And so, and so if we have that sort of trust, well then, then we can look at the way, we're willing to question the way we're thinking. Is there another solution to the suffering that I'm having around anger besides just controlling it, besides just letting it out? When we look at the way we're thinking about anger, the very way we're thinking about anger, yeah. our relationship to thinking, yeah. learning to stop thinking, learning to listen to the space that's there that thinking is taking place in. You can think a thought, and there's a, there's a space in which that thought arises and ceases. There's silence before, during, and after that thought arises. If you've pulled back a little bit into awareness... Metaphorically speaking, you can see that there's this noise of a thought coming and going through the silence. Just as in the space here, using the metaphor of the space, there's a people come and go through the space. It doesn't disturb the space. The space is here, before, during and after we all walk through the space. So we're thinking. So changing our relationship with thinking. So we're not suffering because we're thinking wrongly. Or another aspect of Ajahn Chah's wisdom teachings that I like to think about and uh, I shared with uh, Ajahn Chah Saro was this uh, comment that Ajahn Chah would come out and this is Yasamkan manmayalaisak nitning which uh, was always a nitning that I liked Yasamkan manmayalaisak nitning which literally translates as Yasamkan don't give value to anything not even a little bit don't make a story, would be perhaps a better way of saying it. Don't make a story out of anything, not even a little bit. Yeah. We are habitual story makers, or you could say we're compulsive troublemakers for ourselves. We're always creating stories around things, like that story I created about that generous, kind lady on the train. Yeah. We create all sorts of stories about ourselves. I'm like this, you know, I'm like that. I'm somebody who just can't do that sort of thing. Like with meditation, I just can't meditate. Well, where did that story came from? Come from? We can believe it, but we don't have to believe it. It's just a story. You know, over and over again, I'm reminded myself, but also I, I remind other people who come and see me the, the stories that they've got about themselves that they believe and say, "Oh, I've done this before. I know I'm going to do it again." What you can tell the future? You've got psychic powers. You know you're going to do that in the future. No, you don't. You know, like you know. When I die, it's just like a light goes off. That's it. You don't know that. As far as I'm concerned, it's a really dumb story. But, you know, if you want to believe in it, you can. But you don't have to. You don't don't know it's true. You don't know that a light goes off and that's the end of anything. I don't know that the teachings on rebirth are true. But personally, I think it's a much more intelligent story. And I do think there is a certain amount of evidence that uh, endorses that, that story. So to look at the stories that we create about ourselves and about each other, the views that we have about ourselves and each other, you know, how we solidify ourselves by creating a story and then fixing ourselves with it. That's me. I'm like this. Or other people. Yeah. That person is like that. I saw them did that and they're not going to change the like that. Not a, not a compassionate, not a sensitive, and, and I would say from Dhamma teachings, not a realistic view. That's not a real story. Uh, It's it's actually, most of it is false stories, lies that we tell ourselves and we tell each other. And so this this, uh, teaching that Ajahn Chah gave, don't create a story out of anything, not even a little bit. Now, of course, you know, that's the principle. One can't stop creating stories as an act of will. But the Buddha did stop creating stories. 
the Buddha didn't create any stories from his enlightenment onwards. And you know that, that you would have heard that most famous expression where the, the Buddha said, your ridge pole is broken. No more house building. We're building abidings all the time. Every time we create a story about ourselves, we build this little world, this little house, this little room that we can live in. This is me. I'm like this. And I'm safe now. I know that I'm a, a seriously limited, inadequate, hopeless human being. You know, it's always going to get angry for the rest of my life. And if I'm lucky, when I die, I might get reborn as another human being. But probably not. Maybe you've got such an unpleasant story. Or maybe you've got a very positive story about yourself. Maybe you think you're absolutely wonderful. Yeah. <clears throat> and then you get around being obnoxious and irritating everybody. Yeah, that's not a useful story either. Yeah, the world doesn't need it. You don't need it. The truth is we've all got some wholesomeness and we've all got some unwholesomeness. What the Buddha was encouraging us to do was to generate wholesome conditions, dana sila bhavana, but also to relate to them wisely. We're not grasping at any condition. Any condition grasped at leads to suffering. Any condition grasped at leads to suffering. But even this habit of grasping is not something we're just supposed to idealize about and say, oh, you should stop grasping. You can't stop grasping because you think you should. That's a very initial relationship to Dhamma. That's how we start off, by idealizing. But as we progress, we start to realize, actually, no, we we can't just idealize about how I should and shouldn't be let go of that should and shouldn't be stuff and, and come back and say, well, how is it now? Don't be afraid of, of really accepting the fact that we lie to ourselves. Yeah. We tell ourselves lies all the time. It feels good to tell the truth. Yeah. I was sharing with the community the other day how, I remember when I was about 36, I, remember, I had this, this impression came to me that I was going to die one day. Now, of course, you know, I'd known that for quite a few years. <laughs> in theory, you know, I was 36, I, you know, I kind of realized it was going to happen probably from about the age of five or six onwards. You know, I, I kind of registered this. But I didn't really take it on board that it was going to happen to me. Uh, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think, you know, that's about the right time to really start registering those things. Up until that point, you know, the veils of delusion are, are pretty dense, even if it takes a bit longer before it really the message sinks in. I'm going to die one day. Anyway, having this thought, this wonderful feeling came up. I'm going to die one day. And it did occur to me, well, you know, you're feeling good about that. What's wrong with you? And um, I know Woody Allen, he always talks about his death obsession. And he's always, he spends a lot of money going to see therapists to try and deal with his death obsession. Maybe there's nothing wrong with it. Maybe Woody Allen's got some virtue, you know, to... To consider our mortality actually is common sense. Because if we don't consider our mortality, then what we're doing is lying to ourselves, and that takes a lot of energy. Like telling yourselves you're not going to die, that takes, that's a serious lie. I mean, how many million people have lived on this planet, and not one of them has ever been immortal, despite some of the religious beliefs in China? There are no things as immortals, as far as Buddhists are concerned. Yeah? Not one of them has ever been immortal. Every single one of them has died. And yet we still tell ourselves this, this story that we're not going to die. That gobbles up a lot of energy. So to actually come around to not lying to ourselves anymore and just say, you know, all honesty, oh, I'm going to die one day. Oh, what a relief. Oh, that's joyful. Yeah. Of course, we don't then go to the other extreme and, and enhance it. You know, don't want to do that. Certainly not. No, that's missing the point as well. So don't be afraid to admit even the unpleasant things when they come into consciousness, like the fact we lie to ourselves about all sorts of stuff. To be able to admit our faults. When we see our faults, it feels good to admit it. Again, of course, not indulging. The middle way is between denying and indulging. Denying the fact that we're lying to ourselves all the time and indulging... Both extremes, neither extreme works. You know, like you, you suddenly realize you've been lying to yourself about being a conceited, obnoxious human being, you know, looking in the mirror, thinking how wonderful you are and, and listing off all your virtues and, and just, just can't wait to go out there and share your radiance with other people you know, if you have such a predisposition. And then one day you look in the mirror and you say, oh my God, 
how could I have been doing such a thing? I'm obviously, I'm a total creep. You know, I'm just an obnoxious, total creep that doesn't reserve anybody's disrespect, love, respect, love or affection. And then we indulge in it. Well, that's not it either. So it's not denying, it's not indulging. The, the wisdom of the middle way is that ability to reflect, to get interested in the reality and to consider it. We're not, we're not grasping it. We're not getting lost in it. And so, <clears throat> considering the form of the wisdom teachings, yes, reading the scriptures, yes, listening to the teachings, but also considering for ourselves, when we act in wise ways, or we see other people acting in wise ways, what is the result? When we see other people acting in foolish ways, when we act in foolish ways, what is the result? So on this occasion of celebrating, honouring, the life and the teachings of our great teacher, the Buddha. I'd like to offer these hints at uh, the three legs of the stool, uh, the three legs of the chair on uh, which our practice can rest. Thank you very much this evening for your attention.